Grammar Girl here. I'm Mignon Fogarty, and you can think of me as your friendly guide to the English language. We talk about writing, history, rules, and other cool stuff. Today, we'll talk about the difference between lying and misleading people. And then, because people can use numbers to lie and mislead, we'll talk about percent and percentages. Philosophers as far back as Greek and Roman antiquity debated the meaning of truth. While what constitutes truth has always been controversial, these days it seems like the line between what's true and what's not has become increasingly hard to tease out. So let's look at what it means to lie versus mislead and how it plays out linguistically. Though it might seem subtle, there's a crucial difference in the act of lying versus the act of misleading. Lying involves stating something that you know to be false, and a lie is still a lie regardless of whether your target buys it. Misleading someone, on the other hand, can often be accomplished without explicitly saying something false, and is more about nudging someone in the direction of what you want them to think. Unlike lying, if your target doesn't buy your misleading statement, then you haven't misled anyone. In other words, both lying and misleading are forms of deceptive behavior, but how they're accomplished linguistically and what's at stake are quite different. For instance, think about a situation where Squiggly and Aardvark are talking about how much they each want a chocolate bar, and they generally keep chocolate bars in the pantry. If Squiggly tells Aardvark there are no more chocolate bars in the pantry, despite knowing full well there's one left— Squiggly asserts something that's patently false. In other words, Squiggly is lying so he can grab the chocolate bar for himself later. In contrast, Squiggly's only misleading Aardvark if he says something that's not itself false. For example, he might emphasize that there are cookies left to lead Aardvark to the conclusion, indirectly, that there are no chocolate bars left, only cookies. Why is the difference important? Well, because lies come with a greater cost to your reputation. While everyone from sneaky children to crafty politicians can maintain plausible deniability when truthfully misleading others. In short, being just misleading gives someone a weaselly out that lying doesn't. The trick is in the linguistics of how something is phrased. Because lies require speakers to explicitly say something they know is false, it's hard to deny if caught in that lie. So if Squiggly says he didn't eat the chocolate bar, but Aardvark saw him eating the chocolate bar, then he's pretty much busted. The consequence being that his standing as a trustworthy and reliable speaker will be knocked down a peg or two, not to mention that Aardvark will start hiding his Kit Kats when Squiggly's around. But what if Aardvark knew there was one Kit Kat left, and then later notices it's gone? He mentions this fact to Squiggly, who admits that it is in fact true. He shrugs and admits to having eaten one piece of the Kit Kat, but says nothing about the rest of the Kit Kat. This triggers what those studying pragmatics call a scalar implicature, where a listener infers through experience that a speaker's use of the smaller term, one or a part, usually negates the larger term, all. A typical listener would think that if Squiggly says he ate one piece, that means he didn't also eat the rest. In other words, we generally believe speakers are being as informative as possible. 
But this isn't actually part of the semantic content of what Squiggly said, because the literal meaning of Squiggly's statement doesn't include any information about the rest of the Kit Kat. As a result, since it's true that Squiggly did in fact eat one piece of the Kit Kat, he can deny having lied when later video surveillance shows him scarfing the entire thing. After all, he never said he didn't eat all the Kit Kat. So he was perhaps misleading Aardvark, but not technically lying to him. The benefit of this distinction is that he can save face and still get to eat the Kit Kat. This is the essence of plausible deniability and why it's so appealing to those who want to persuade others by manipulating the representation of facts. Squiggly can say it wasn't a lie when he claimed to have eaten a piece of the Kit Kat, when in fact the whole bar was consumed because he was less informative, one chocolate stick, rather than fully informative, all four chocolate sticks, in describing what he did. This is a form of vagueness, and deception often relies on intentionally making vague statements that allow for a greater number of possible interpretations, even though the speaker suspects, based on experience and what's contextually or culturally relevant, that certain incorrect but favorable interpretations are likely. This is a form of vagueness, and deception often relies on intentionally making vague statements that allow for a greater number of possible interpretations, even though the speaker suspects, based on experience and what's contextually or culturally relevant, that certain incorrect but favorable interpretations are likely. A great example of this comes from the way politicians running for office will often make statements that are hard to pin down in terms of what exactly they're promising. For example, saying you plan to make a tax change that benefits Americans is technically true if just two Americans benefit. By not being clear about how many benefit or precisely who benefits, Politicians can more easily massage the facts later to fit what they said and deny that any campaign promises were broken. In short, by reducing the informativeness of what you say, you create the opportunity to mislead people without actually lying. The linguistic crux here is that the information we get when talking to others goes far beyond the pure semantic content, the literal meaning, of someone's sentences. Conversationalists have expectations and cultural knowledge they apply to what the other person is saying, which leads them to interpret what's said in particular and predictable ways, something linguists call implicatures. Speakers who want to be deceptive but also want to maintain the appearance of being truthful can instead be quote-unquote truthfully misleading by claiming they didn't intend to lead to a particular inference by what they said. And finally, of course, people can also lie and mislead at the same time. The motto of this story is that it's up to the listener to beware and to recognize such manipulation by understanding how misleading language can still be deceptive, even if it's technically truthful. So pay attention to both what is said and what isn't said. That segment was written by Valerie Fridland, who's a professor of linguistics at the University of Nevada in Reno and the author of a forthcoming book on all the speech habits we love to hate. She's also a language expert for Psychology Today, where she writes a monthly blog, Language in the Wild. You can find her at ValerieFridland.com or on Twitter as FridlandValerie. 
And I have to say that right after Valerie turned in this piece, a company 100% absolutely misled me. And because of this piece, I got really excited before I got angry. <gasps> I've been misled. And then, oh, jerks. <laughs> First, let's get our terminology right. In some cases, percent and percentage can be interchangeable. But the easiest way to choose the right word for the right situation is to use percent with a number and percentage without a number. For example, percentage without a number. What percentage of the chocolate was missing? And percent with a number, 40% of the chocolate was missing. In American English, when you write out the word percent, it's one word. It's more common to see the two-word version, per cent, in British English. The one-word version is definitely gaining ground in Britain, but the two-word form is still more common. The evolution of the word is kind of interesting. It started out as the two-word Latin phrase, per centum, which means by the hundred, and over the years got shortened to the two-word English version with a period after cent, to show that it was an abbreviation of kentum, then appeared as two words without a period, and is now quite established as a single English word. Sometimes people ask whether percentages are singular or plural, and as so often the case, the answer is, it depends. If you're referring to a percentage of something, then that something determines whether you use a singular or plural verb. In technical terms, that something is called the object of the preposition. The preposition is the word of. Here's an example. 40% of the chocolate is missing. In that sentence, the chocolate is singular, so you use a singular verb, is. But 40% of the chocolate chips are missing. In that sentence, the chocolate chips is plural, so you use a plural verb, are. But what if there's no preposition or no object of the preposition after the word percent? You've lost your clue. Well, first, ask yourself if it's implied. If the implied phrase is singular, use a singular verb. And if it's plural, use a plural verb. Here's an example where the plural is implied. The first sentence is, the chocolate chips were pillaged. And then you write, 40% were missing. In the second sentence, the plural phrase, the chocolate chips, is the implied object of the preposition. So you use the plural verb, were. In the next example, the implied object is singular. So you use a singular verb. The chocolate was pillaged. 40% was missing. Finally, if you have no way to figure out whether the word percent is referring to something singular or plural, you can use whatever verb you like, singular or plural. It's that easy. It's a little more complicated with the word percentage. The same rules I just told you apply when you're talking about a percentage of something, singular something, singular verb, plural something, plural verb. But when you're talking about the percentage of something, it's always singular. So a percentage of the chocolate chips were missing, but the percentage of chocolate chips missing was shocking. Also for percentage, the order of the sentence matters. If the percentage phrase comes later in the sentence after the verb, you need a singular verb. So like before, a percentage of the chocolate chips were missing but there is a large percentage of chocolate chips missing. So now that you know how to use percents, let's talk about how to write percents in a sentence. Style guides disagree about when you should use the word percent or the symbol and when you should use the numeral or the word for the number. 
In general, I like the style where you always use the numeral and the percent symbol. The Associated Press Stylebook makes that recommendation, which is a recent change, and the Chicago Manual of Style says it's allowed, but that writing out the word percent is more common in non-technical contexts. The MLA Handbook has an even different rule. It says to spell it all out if you can do so in three words or less, but to use the numeral and percent symbol if it would take more words. So in MLA style, you'd write out 100% with all the words, but you'd use numerals and the percent symbol for 48.5%. As you can tell, the styles are all over the place, so be sure to check your style guide if you're required to follow one, and if not, decide on a style you'd like for yourself and just be consistent. All three styles do agree, though, that you should write out the words if you're using the percent at the beginning of a sentence. Next, let's talk about small numbers. If you're talking about a percent that's less than one, make sure you put a zero before the decimal point. Write something like 0.2%, not just 0.2%. And that's true for writing any numeral that's less than one, whether it's a percent or not. That little decimal point is too easy to miss without the zero in front of it. Finally, there are a few things you should know about calculating and interpreting percentages. First, something can't decrease by more than 100%. Once 100% of something is gone, there isn't anything left. So don't write that a price or anything else decreased by 150%, for example. Second, there's a difference between a percent change and a percentage point change. Going from 5% of something to 10% of something is a 100% increase, but only a 5 percentage point increase. Be careful not to call that a 5% increase, because that's a common error. And third, when you're reading about medical, political, or financial news, it's important to understand that big percentage changes can mean small overall increases or decreases. For example, an article that reports a 50% increase in the rate of a rare disease may be telling you that instead of 1 in 100,000 people getting flugety-flork disease every year, now 1.5 people in 100,000 get the disease every year. A 50% increase sounds a lot scarier than the increase in raw numbers. Percentages aren't always misleading, but they can be, so your this-could-be-misleading detector should be amped up when you start reading or hearing about percentages. Finally, I have a family-like story from Chuck. Hi, Minion. This is Chuck Tomasi from Phoenix, Arizona. I think my last voice message to you was about 15 years ago, so I thought it was time to send you an update and a family-like. When we lived in Wisconsin, unsurprisingly, we had cold, winter, windy day, and our oldest daughter combined breezy with freezing cold and came up with breezing cold. So now whenever it's cold and windy, we say, whew, it's breezing cold, which actually doesn't happen that much here in Phoenix, but you get the idea. Thanks for the show. Keep up the great work. Chuck is one of my old podcasting friends. He's one of the authors of Podcasting for Dummies and the co-host of the Technorama podcast. I especially love to hear family-like stories from old friends. So thanks for the message, Chuck. If you want to call with the story of your family act, the word your family and only your family uses, you can leave a voicemail at 833214-GIRL. Call from a nice quiet place and I might play it on the show. Thanks to my audio engineer, Nathan Sims, and my editor, Adam Cecil. Our marketing and publicity assistant is Davina Tomlin, and our ad operations specialist is Morgan Christensen. 
Finally, our assistant manager is Emily Miller, who went skiing, left the Bunny Hill once, and has decided she'll probably never go skiing again. Also, this is Emily's last week. She's going to a company called Wise, which you may have actually heard advertising on podcasts, and she's going to join their marketing team as a performance marketing specialist. Emily, we're going to miss you so much, but I'm also... You know, so happy for you to be moving on to a new exciting opportunity, which is what we all have to do at different points in our life. It's been wonderful to watch you grow at Quick and Dirty Tips over the many years you've been with us. And Wise is lucky to have you. I'm Mignon Fogarty, better known as Grammar Girl. That's all. Thanks for listening. Hey, it's Mignon. If you want to do more to hone your communication skills, then check out Think Fast, Talk Smart, produced by the Stanford Graduate School of Business and hosted by my friend and Stanford lecturer, Matt Abrahams. You may remember Matt from his interview on the show back in September when he shared his top tips for becoming a better writer and speaker. Think Fast, Talk Smart is his Webby award-winning podcast, which has been downloaded 41 million times and has been the number one career podcast in more than 95 countries, so you know it's worth your time. Whether you're making a wedding toast or presenting at work, strong speaking skills are critical to success in business and in life, which is why Matt sits down with experts every week to talk about the best tips to unlock your communication potential. Hear from pros like neuroscientist Andrew Huberman on how to manage speaking anxiety, speechwriter and best-selling author Dan Pink on how to take risks in your communication, and psychologist Kelly McGonigal on how to harness nervous energy to fuel powerful presentations. So what are you waiting for? Listen to Think Fast, Talk Smart every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube. And tell Matt I said hi.